Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. When a refugee, someone who has fled war, violence, conflict, or persecution, and has crossed an international border to find safety in another country, comes to the United States, they're typically given very little help when resettling their lives. 1951 Coffee Company hopes to change that, using the coffee industry as a tool for empowerment and self-determination. In this episode, I talk to Doug Hewitt, co-founder of 1951 Coffee Company, which is based in Berkeley, California. 1951 created a barista training program specifically aimed at refugees and helps trainees find placements at its own cafes or at other partner cafes in the Bay Area. The goal isn't simply to train new baristas, but to give people control over their lives without expectation. Plenty of folks go through 1951's training program and ultimately decide to move on to other fields or to go back to school. Ultimately, the goal is to help people feel safe making their own decisions and to give them the tools to figure out what their goals are instead of forcing them to make choices out of necessity or scarcity. Doug believes that coffee can be a tool to give power and control back to displaced people, one that extends far beyond the Bay Area. Here's Doug. So Doug, I was hoping you could start just by introducing yourself for everybody. Okay, my name is uh, Doug Hewitt. I'm one of the co-founders of 1951 Coffee Company. Uh, I came to the work of, of 1951 Coffee Company um, having worked as a coffee roaster. I uh, worked with uh, Boot Coffee Consulting on a project they had um, called Aletta Wando Coffee uh, for a couple of years. And while doing that, I actually got involved with the International Rescue Committee, uh, volunteering to teach English to newly arrived refugees. Um, spent some time, uh, you know, while I was roasting coffee, uh, getting more deeply involved in the refugee community and then eventually got a job at the International Rescue Committee working on helping newly arrived refugees uh, secure employment uh, before finally overseeing the Oakland office of the International Rescue Committee uh, and overseeing the resettlement uh, department. Uh, in 2015, I left that work uh, to start 1951 Coffee Company to create a, a coffee organization that would help uh, newly arrived refugees find jobs in the coffee industry. So what about your work at working in coffee and then working with the International Rescue Committee made you think, oh, these are two intersections that I can solve a larger problem with, or there's a need here that I see that both of these things can work well together in? Yeah, so it, it's actually interesting. The The first time I actually met someone who was a refugee here in the United States, I was working at, a, at another cafe. Um, had you know begun working there as a barista, and there was another guy who was hired to uh, work alongside of me um, as a barista, and we became good friends. And one day, you know, we were just chatting over over lunch, and he was telling me, you know, a little bit about himself. And then I said, "Well, how did you come to the United States?" And he began to tell me about his story of coming from Eritrea, uh, fleeing Eritrea into Sudan, from Sudan fleeing across the Sahara Desert to Libya. Uh, from Libya, you know, attempting to cross the Mediterranean Sea twice and eventually, eventually succeeding. Um, the first time he tried one of the boats, he was on sank and he was rescued, uh, rescued by the Coast Guard. Um, and so just this whole long process of sitting there in this cafe, you know, hearing the story and, um, 
you know, so for me, it, it kind of began both at the same time. My first job, you know, in coffee working as a barista and my first time meeting someone who was a refugee kind of happened in the in the same moment. We went on to become good friends. I got to know his community more. I continued, you know, I was working on my master's program and finished my master's, started working as a, a coffee roaster for the, for that one year and continued to get involved more deeply with the refugee community. And I think in my time getting, you know, more involved, learning more, understanding more of what it's like for someone to come from outside of the United States, you know, fleeing, you know, war, conflict, violence, um, to try to find safety uh, here in the U.S., I began to realize that it was a very, a very difficult system. Um, it's also a system or a difficult path to navigate. Uh, and then a difficult system to 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 be integrated into. Uh, in my time working at the International Rescue Committee on helping refugees find jobs, um, you know, refugees when they arrive, uh, they have about you know about six months is what the U.S. government says that they have to um, be economically self sufficient here in the United States. And these are refugees coming with, from all walks of life. Some who have you know very high levels of, of formal education, PhDs, um, people who uh, you know, have had very little formal education um, in their life. There are people who speak fluent English, people who who have never spoken English before, you know, in their lives. And the system is is made the same for for everyone. Um, and you know what it does is, you know, when a refugee arrives, they have about a thousand dollars that is designated by the U.S. government to help them resettle per person. Um, here in a place like California, that resettlement money is almost gone immediately, just paying rent and the, the rent deposit just to get their lives started. That's the only guaranteed funding they're ever really going to receive um, to get their lives started here. And so that means, you know, for refugee resettlement agencies that are there to help with that process, getting employment is one of the most important pieces. And I realized that because of the breadth of, of experiences um, that people were coming into the U.S. with, finding that survival employment, as we call it in the refugee resettlement sector, is extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult um, to to land that first job in the amount of time needed to be able to really take care um, of yourself, to be able to take care of your families. And so I think that seeing you know that process over the years that I was working at the International Rescue Committee, I realized that like you know these refugee resettlement agencies have this Herculean task, this task that is extremely difficult to accomplish. The funding that they're given to accomplish that work is very very limited. And I realized that there needed to be something companies that could come alongside something in the private sector that could come along and say, hey, we're here to step beside you and make this better. Um, I knew that the coffee industry is all based around hospitality, around welcoming people, around building community. And I thought, you know, what better way for, you know, cafes in the coffee industry to step in um, and be a part of the solution for the challenges that refugees face when they want to resettle in the U.S.? At what point does 1951 step in? At what point do you essentially Great. find people, yeah, find people to be part of the community of your community and then help them get from that that first initial point of we're looking for a job, we're looking to resettle our lives to we are financially independent. Right. So, uh, 1951 Coffee, you know, we we work with a lot of the refugee resettlement and assistance agencies here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And what we do is, you know, we let them know about our services. Um, and, you know, our, our initial thing, you know, is kind of primarily focused on the, the most recently arrived refugees, those most in need of that survival uh, employment. And so, 
usually a refugee when they arrive, maybe for the first month, there'll be a lot of, you know, things they have to do, go to social services, getting IDs, setting, kind of setting up their, their kind of legal existence here in the United States and all the paperwork to, to prove it and, and all of those things. And so that's usually the first month when someone arrives, a lot of that happens. Um, but by the end of that first month, they're usually be enrolled in some type of uh, employment assistance program, something that will help them build a resume and search for a job. There are very few, if any at all, uh, training programs that are out there to help someone learn a skill or acquire a skill that is immediately transferable uh, here into the U.S. workforce. And so that's when we step in. And, you know, we have told all these refugee resettlement agencies that we are offering a free two-week barista training program to any refugees, asylum seekers, um, or there's another group called Special Immigrant Visa Holders who come from Iraq or Afghanistan um, who were somehow involved either with the U.S. government or the U.S. military and because of that their lives are threatened. And so we also work with that group um, if they are resettled in the United States as well. Um, and so we're really trying to step in in that earliest stage to provide this free training um, so that people can become, you know, baristas and find jobs in the in the coffee industry. Um, but we don't limit it to just those. We realize that people, as they're going through life and they're they're operating here in the United States, maybe they find a. a a survival job early on, washing dishes at a restaurant or, or working somewhere. And then, you know, like I, this is not the job that I want to do forever, but I'm not really sure how to transition out of that. I want to transition into a, a more public facing job. Um, and so, you know, we don't limit the time or the scope of which someone has been in the country um, for them to the, be referred to us. Um, so other agencies will have someone, maybe they're finishing high school. Um, maybe they're, you know, at a transition point in their life or they just want to change paths in their life. And so they'll be referred to us, go through our training program. And then from there, we'll step in uh, and help them find employment either at one of our cafes or at um, our growing number of partner cafes here in the Bay Area. I think that's a good thing to point out is not only does 1951 provide job training to help refugees find jobs, but you actually also act as an intermediary between Bay Area coffee companies and refugees in order to find them placement. So I was wondering what that process has looked like, because it seems... It seems like embarrassingly simple, like, mm -hmm. of course, coffee can do this kind of work and we should be doing more of this. But I, I, I know as somebody who's covered 1951 coffee pretty extensively when I was working at Barista Magazine, I had never heard of a program like this. And yeah. as I was reading more and more about 1951, I was like, why, why, why haven't we made this system? Especially because in coffee, like it is about hospitality and it is about being public facing, but at the same time, you don't you don't need a lot to do it and you don't need a lot that we can't teach you how to do. Right. Right. Well, I think, you know, I think some of it was kind of, uh, I think the way that I, I, I've looked at the coffee industry is there are a lot of skills, especially when you're in the, you know, the specialty coffee industry, right? There is a high value on, on quality, on focus and making, you know, a drink, really, really well for each and every customer that comes in. Um, and if we, you know, when we were actually in the process of starting 1951 Coffee, we spent a lot of time, initially we were just gonna open our own cafe. That was the only idea, we we're gonna open our own cafe, We'll, you know, uh, you know, empower refugees to work at our, our company. They'll grow and, you know, that kind of thing. But then as we kind of like went to the other coffee companies, we noticed there were so many people in the coffee industry looking for baristas who would come and work for them and stay 
for, for, for longer than, you know, six months to a year that would really kind of make a home in the coffee industry. And so, you know, we kind of toy around with the idea of, well, like, what if we just had a training program? Like, we're going to have to train our, our, our staff anyway, but what if we trained more people than we could employ? And then we were going to these same coffee companies that are looking for, for baristas that want to be a part of their companies, that want to kind of put down roots in those companies. Um, and then, you know, it can kind of be a mutually beneficial thing for both the refugees coming to the U.S. and and these same coffee companies. And so we began the process of doing that and creating this training program uh, and, and then networking with with cafes. And I think that, you know, I, I think anecdotally, I kind of knew this inside of me that, you know, the coffee industry is very, very well grounded in, in American society. Um, there are coffee, you know, sometimes I, I think we'll say that the coffee is one of the most American things while one of the most international things at the exact same moment. Coffee comes in from all over the world, but it's almost, some people will say there's nothing more American than a cup of coffee. Um, and so because of that coffee, you know, coffee companies, cafes are located throughout all over the United States in all different kinds of neighborhoods. Um, and it really provides a place. It's kind of a microcosm of American life. And I knew that it was a place where we could begin to to plant those seeds of what a welcoming society in the United States was working within the coffee company and then seeing it grow from there. Um, and, you know, initially when we when we began to think about this, we were really nervous. We thought maybe coffee companies wouldn't be into this. Maybe this wouldn't be the thing for them. But we found that when we could we could do two weeks of training. And yes, you don't know everything. You're not an expert by the end of those two weeks, but you know a lot more than a lot of people do when they start their first barista job. And so we realized this was an opportunity to help you know refugees be competitive as they went to job interviews. And and so we had actually some early success with some some pretty major coffee companies you know here in the Bay Area saying like absolutely we want to be a part of this. I remember uh, one HR person that was said you know Doug I know that you're probably worried about whether we're going to do this. She said but we're going to make this happen because we want this to happen. Um, and I was just like, I mean, to me, that was so encouraging to me that the coffee industry would be willing to step up and say, you know what? Yeah, we, we can do this. We can bring people into our team. And we, you know, as we worked with these different companies, we're not asking people to like, you know, hire 25 people in you know, one company, but to like bring one person in, help build that one person up, help make them a part of your team, welcome them into your cafe, welcome them into your community. And then we'll all go from there because if we're all doing those things cumulatively, it adds up to a really, really big impact. And we have that opportunity to do that in our cafes. Absolutely. And I think what you said about community makes so much sense. The idea that there is nothing more American than than a coffee shop. Everybody knows what one is. Everyone's been to one. And it's also incredibly international as well. Right. And they can be incredibly reflective of the community that surrounds you. And to to make them welcoming for people who are new to this country, who are now part of our community, we're specifically saying, you are here, you're part of our community. And finding a way through that door um, is incredibly powerful. Right. Uh, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what founding 1951 Coffee was like in the sort of cusp of the Trump administration, because I imagine that a lot of what 1951 does has been affected by the the, the right. climate, like the political climate. Um, right. So I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit of that. 
Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. And it's, it's very interesting because we actually opened our, our first cafe uh, the day after Trump's inauguration. It was it was such a, an interesting, I mean, three days later, travel bans were happening. And I think a lot of people thought that like we specifically opened this cafe as like a policy, like or like an opposition to those to those policies. If like, you know, opening a cafe only took between the time that he was elected and the inauguration. Obviously, it took much, much more time than that. You know, we started this long before. Trump was really on anyone's political political radar. And because we were already seeing the challenges at that time, I think in 2015, when we actually formally set out to create 1951 Coffee, you know, it was just kind of these debates raging about, you know, are, how are refugees coming here? What are the real facts about someone coming here? Is it safe? Is it not safe? Like, what, what, what is this all about? And it was in that environment of an already difficult system with a lot of misinformation that we said we wanted to start this to provide a better start for refugees, but also to inform the public about what it really is like for a refugee to come to the U.S. And so that's where we started. When we moved into, you know, the Trump administration, obviously, you know, those initial weeks were, were a whirlwind for us. We had people, you know, who were coming to us and were like, oh, my gosh, I am so glad that you all are open and doing what you're doing right now. Because, you know, there for a lot of people that really wanted to be in support of, of refugees or even just immigrants in general coming to the United States, there were a limited number of places where they could really go and show immediate support to those communities. You know, you could show up at an airport and protest. You could protest, you know, around your city or at City Hall. Um, but you really couldn't go into I mean, you could you know, a refugee resettlement agency or something like you could go sit in their lobby and then like tell everybody, hey, I'm glad you're here. But it didn't really work the same way because it just wouldn't be a most effective way to do it. But the work that we're doing at our cafes provided a tangible way for people to immediately interact with the refugee community in a very positive way. Um, we had people who were coming in during that time, especially early on, and they were you know, having groups where they would gather together and write letters or cards or whatever to their elected officials saying like, we've gotta you know, get these people behind making changes to this. And, and I think as we went on through the years and, and knowing that the system was threatened, I think that it provided a place for us, even as a, as a staff, you know, with the people who had come through, you know, come through the refugee process here to the United States, we had a lot of discussions about what does all this mean? You know, because for a lot of our staff, they had family members that were blocked from coming to the country. They had people that, you know, that, that were on their way that like suddenly their flights were canceled, um, families that are separated. And, and so we had to have a lot of conversations about that. But it also provided a place for, for them to vent, um, to talk about that, but also to constantly be able to be reminded that like there are people who aren't the official part of what this policy is that are saying you are welcome here. You are valuable. You are a part of our society that we want to be here and we want to, you know, to welcome you in and make this work. Um, and so I think that was a, a lot of, was just that, that touching point to always kind of remind people that how, no matter how dark this overall political climate is, there are people in the community that are saying, this is not the way that it should be. That is not the way that it's supposed to be. And honestly, even historically, refugee resettlement and welcoming refugees has been a largely bipartisan thing. Um, that almost always, even though our, our commitment as a country to the UN had always been about to welcome about 50% of the recommended number of refugees each year, we often exceeded that, even up to 70, 75%, which for America, following a, an international uh, agreement and 
far, far exceeding it is, is pretty amazing. Um, and so that's something we really wanted to, to remind people, even in those darkest moments of, the, of that kind of four year period, um, that there is still work to do. But I think one of the, the things we also did is during that time, a lot of obviously the number of refugees being allowed to come in was cut very, very, very small. Um, but the number of asylum seekers, people who were already in the United States in some other way, but are applying for basically humanitarian um, permission to stay here in the U.S. so they're not sent back to a dangerous place. Um, that number actually was a very large number still during that period. And so we we kind of expanded to working a lot more with asylum seekers here in the United States uh, during that time. So That's really cool. That's so like, I don't know. That was a lot to take in. Uh, I, like I'm buzzing a little bit from all of that. Um, one thing, though, that I think is not to be overlooked is some of the the signaling that you do at 1951. So it's not just about we have a barista training program and we find jobs for people, but you walk into 1951 and the story of America's relationship to refugees and finding safe places for asylum seekers to go is very much ingrained in the physical space. Yes. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit of because it seems like 1951 was thought of as a very multifaceted approach to a very large problem of how we treat refugees in the United States. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, our, our three pillars in 1951 are obviously, you know, job training, employment, and then advocacy. And the piece that you're talking about is, is advocacy. And, you know, we realize, I think any of us who have, uh, who've walked into a cafe know that, especially when the cafe is busy, you're going to spend a lot of time waiting for your, your drink to get ready. Um, and we realized, you know, back in 2015, when there was so much disinformation uh, about refugees, we realized that, you know, refugees coming to the United States, you know, had these huge challenges to get here, only to just have this skeptic public not really know that, like, did it really take that long? Did it really take on average 17 years for the time a refugee leaves their home to get here? And so we decided, you know, like we need to find a way to just make this information readily available. And we knew that like that waiting time in a cafe is the perfect moment to inject as much information into these discussions as we can. And so, you know, when you walk into our cafe uh, on Channing Way in Berkeley, um, it's almost in some ways like a like a museum. Uh, we have a curved wall uh, actually near where our, our condiment bar is. So when someone's putting sugar in their in, in their coffee, they can look up and they can see what is the what are the general steps and path that a refugee takes um, to come to the United States. And there's there's stats and information there from the United Nations High Commission for Refugees on the number of refugees in the world, um, the number of refugees that are kind of resettled every year, um, and then you know again like I said the the flow of what that path and that resettlement process looks like. Um, but we also try to help people understand and know you know what why is it important for us to to welcome you know refugees you know, here in the United States right now, there are around 26 million, you know, refugees in, in the world. And, you know, there are countries outside of the United States that are hosting refugees. I think like Lebanon hosts refugees up to about 25% of the population of Lebanon are refugees. And if you realize that if the United States hosted refugees at the same rate, we could host every single refugee in the entire world. Um, and so, you know, looking at those things and having these pieces of information in our cafe, we hope that people will, one, have truthful information. And second, we'll realize that, wait a minute, like there, there's so much more that we can do here to really solve a, a major global issue. I imagine when you're thinking about these big goals for 1951, 
at some point you distill them down really basically. Like you, you take all these goals and then you're like, what's, what's the core of this? And the core of this, it seems is we are here to help people in need. Right. And then when you go to the other end of it, when you think about where are people afraid, like what are people resistant to and trying to distill that down, it's, and it's mostly fear-based. And like you were saying, there's a lot of misinformation about what it actually takes to get to the United States. What are the needs of refugees? And you're seeing people talk a lot more about that now, especially when it relates to coffee. Like you were talking about Eritrea, and now I'm thinking about Central and South South American countries where, Mm -hmm. you know, we basically, the United States very much caused political instability. And now we have people fleeing to the United States to seek asylum from unsafe environments. Mm -hmm. And as you distill these themes down, like how does this affect how you talk to people, because I, I have to imagine that for the most part, people probably come into 1951 and they're already bought in, at least to some extent. Like they're like, we get this. This is amazing. I'm learning so much. But at the same time, like I, I'm here for it. But I wonder on the converse, what how do you approach people who maybe don't have that perspective, who are maybe on the more fear based side of this? Because I, I, I imagine there's some tension there on both ends. Yeah, I, I think one of the ways that we that we do that. Um is again some of it is just being to provide truthful factual information um information we have like a lot of statistics in the cafe um things that are not necessarily immensely controversial um it's just you know being able to inject those discussions with the right information with the clear definition legal definition for for who a refugee is so that when we even begin that conversation we know exactly what we're talking about i think one of the things approaches that we've taken and this has been whether it's customers in our cafes um, people that come and volunteer at our, our barista training program, uh, or even as times that we've had um, trainings for for cafe managers that we've done who work at other cafes on how they can welcome refugees, is we really try not to shame someone for whatever questions they need to ask in order to get the information they need to to really form a good opinion about you know, welcoming refugees into the United States. And that sometimes is really difficult. And, you know, you hear people that are like, this is the most outlandish thing. How do you not know and understand this? But at the same time, I know from my own experience growing up in, in the foothills of, of East Tennessee, I wasn't exposed to a lot of people coming in from all over the world. I grew up in a very, you know, close-knit environment that people that looked like me, that acted like me, that walked like me, that talked like me, that had the same assumptions in life. And if I hadn't had someone like my friend when I was first working at that cafe to just blow my mind away with information that I had never heard before, you know, I wouldn't have the opportunity to even be where I am at this point. And so, you know, we really try to make sure that, you know, we can, you know, we try to be truthful. We try to, you know, be straightforward, um, but really try to give opportunity for people to to see that, you know, refugees are, are people who, like, if they are coming to the U.S., a lot of times, you know, like my friend. He told me about what it was like those nights walking across the Sahara Desert just to get to a small town in Libya where the first thing that happened to him is he was put in jail for four months for entering Libya illegally. But he spent days walking across the Sahara Desert. And I think that that strength and determination that it takes for someone coming that path to end up here in the United States, like if you want to build a strong society, like those are the kind of people that you need. You know, and so I think, you know, when you when we're able to, you know, really distill it down to that basic core human element of what we're talking about, I feel like a lot more people then understand that okay, this is this is a lot different than what I had originally perceived we're talking about. Mm-hmm. 
How do you think about storytelling? Because it seems like it's a pivotal part of what 1951 does. And as you rightly pointed out, for a lot of people, big themes like the need to help people seeking asylum maybe don't always land until we hear a firsthand experience or maybe we see it in action. Um, And that's perhaps a blind side to uh, growing up, you know, with 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 privilege. I think we just find privilege right there. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do you balance the other end of it where we don't we don't need we don't I guess I don't want to say like like poverty porn or trauma porn but the idea mm-hmm. that like like how do you balance <laughs> right being That's able it, yeah. to tell a yeah. story that mm-hmm. like matters but at the same time like you're you're not trying to exploit people's stories you don't want to put them out there just for the sake of like creating this like this sense of of tragedy to prove worth yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something, you know, when we initially started, you know, creating our cafe, I mean, I think anyone who has ever, you know, turned on the TV, or if you're following, you know, some organization, you see that, like, you immediately connect, and you know, like, okay, the this group of, you know, organizations or whatever, they're attempting to hit my heart, and they're attempting to hit it hard. But what they really want is my wallet, they want my money. And like, you, you see how this happens. And, and there's this almost undignified element um, that they tend to portray when they're, they're trying to, to advocate for a group of individuals. And I think from the very beginning, we wanted to be really intentional about avoiding that style of, of advocacy. Um, and I, th- I think a few different ways that we did that, even in the physical design of this cafe and the information and the way that it looks and the colors and all of that scheme was done in consultation with a group of refugees to help guide us in well, what kind of an environment would you want to work in that would also advocate for people who have come through the experience that you've come through? How do you want that story to be told? What are the p- key pieces of information that you always wish Americans knew about that endeavor? So I think one of the first things was engaging with the community and allowing them to have uh, some say so and in, in, in what this advocacy you know looks like um, I think another part of that is you know with the the staff that work at our cafes or with the uh, people who go through our training program we always give them the full autonomy over their own stories you know if, if someone is coming to us and like hey can is someone from your team can they share their story about coming to the United States we never promise that someone will we always go and we talk to our staff and say, like, is there anyone who's willing or interested to do this? Very often, you know, if they're feeling, you know, like they want to do it, but they're a little bit nervous about it, someone from our team will accompany them. And we always tell them at any moment, if someone asks a question or if there's something you don't want to talk about, you don't have to talk about it. Those stories are your own. You own them. No one can ever, you know, force you or push you to tell those stories. And I think for us, a lot of that comes from just giving our team autonomy. Um, if they're interested in telling it, but they're just nervous about how to do it, we'll, we'll coach them through it. We'll help them navigate that process. Um, and so I think, you know, those are the, the main things that we try to do. Again, like I, like I said, it's like you, I, my friend who told me his story, like no one asked him to do that. Like he's, he told it out of his own heart, out of his own desire for me to know and understand. And that's always more, it's, it's true and authentic. And that, that, that's not, that's exactly what what anybody would want when they're hearing someone's story is the true authentic story. And I think as an organization, we've just tried to really make sure that that's always the way we approach any storytelling um, from our team is that it is, it is their choice, their desire um, and, you know, in, in their power. It seems like authenticity is really tied to self-sufficiency, which I think is a bigger theme of 1951. I think you can say, we are here to give refugees barista training so that they find jobs. But I think if you really 
widened the umbrella even more. It's we are here to help people be self-sufficient. Right. I think. So how does, yeah, what does that look like for you? Sure, sure. And I I think we would even take it, you know, one step further. A lot of economic programs are are here for self-sufficiency, but we're also trying to help people have self-determination. And and what what I mean by that, and maybe a distinct difference, you know, self-sufficiency is like, I can survive. Like I can survive on my own. But self-determination is when you have the tools and the abilities to make choices that affect your own life. And with Mm -hmm. some guarantee that those things will actually come to fruition. And so what we're trying to do with people who come through our training program uh, or her work at our cafes, um, we don't tell them how long they can work with us. We don't tell them how long we'll help them look for a job. We don't tell them, oh, you have to have been here this amount of time or that amount of time, or you have to be this age or that age. If you are able to work and you want help navigating the system, we will help you navigate the system through the coffee industry. However, we also don't say that, hey, if you decide you go through our training program and you want to apply for a job that's not in the coffee industry, we're going to help you apply for that job too. Um, Because again, we want people to have the ability to make their own goals, their own choices. Some people have gone through our training program and immediately they they like, you know, I'm not ready for work, but like, I'm really glad I did that because now I'm coming away with a group of friends and we continue to count that as a success. Because they're connected to a community of people now through that training class. Like just getting that economic piece may not have been the piece that made the difference for them. And so we really try to look at how we gauge success. Is success is the the people who come through our programs that say, hey, having been through this, my life is now better and moving forward in the way that I want it to move forward here in the United States. And very often, yes, that is economic, but it could be through community building. It could be through just having the access to a a network of resources and information. I mean, someone wants to buy a car and they've never bought a car before or buy a cell phone or something like that's something that we can help people with that maybe a normal workplace, a normal you know job program wouldn't help someone do. But again, we're trying to help people navigate what their goals are. We're just trying to use coffee as one potential opportunity to do that. Yeah, it seems like no matter what, what you do, if you do something new or if you're in a new environment, there's going to be some lack of control of your life or control of what's going on around you. And it right. seems like 1951 really steps in and says, like, we will give you that control. We have tools that will help empower you to take control over your life. So like you were saying, I really am glad that you actually define self-determination because I think that could be one of those terms that it's like very like like american dream like that's like you pull yourself up by your bootstraps but Mm -hmm. what you're saying is that people need tools to make that happen people need tools to be able to apply for a driver's license or know what it is to you know access community resources or Mm -hmm. like you said buy a car if you've never bought a car before um once you give people those tools they can take control over their lives and it seems like a lot of the goals of 1951 are to give people those tools and not necessarily to say goodbye to them but to say like we don't expect anything in return exactly you you, like you're like you take control of your life and if you need us we're here if you don't like we're always here the door is always open but you don't owe us anything Right. And that's and when people work at our cafe, we've had people work with us for, for six months is they just needed a transition to life here. We've had people who stayed with us for years because they wanted to put down roots. We've had some people that are like, hey, I only want part time. I'm going to school. That's what my real desire is. I don't want to work in coffee forever. I love you guys, but that's not what I want to do. And we're, we're 100 percent OK with all those things. And I think that's something as a company that we just we have to be flexible with if we really want people to, to have the opportunities to do their own thing. A lot of other programs that are out there, they do a lot of really good work, but there's a lot 
lot of restrictions around it when someone's in or whether it's time, age, what they have to accomplish, what they don't have to accomplish. And we just wanted to be different in that way to give people the opportunity to, to be involved in something that hopefully lifts a burden from their shoulders and not adds a different one on their shoulders in that project. Right. So, yeah. What is, so how has COVID-19 affected 1951? Yeah, that's been, yeah, it's affected us a lot, um, to, to be honest. I mean, it just, if you, you know, look at cafe sales is one metric. I mean, our cafe sales are down about 90% of what they were last year. Um, we had three cafes prior to COVID. Right now, we only have one cafe that is operating. Um, and so, you know, that's that's changed a lot. We've gone down from a team of about 25 people to a team of about six people. Um, and, you know, thankfully, we are still operating. And I think that's, you know, in this climate, when so many other cafes, restaurants have, have closed their doors, um, we're thankful to be at that point. Um, you know, and I think for us, something that, that has been challenging, I mean, we're a, a nonprofit coffee company. Um, we do highly rely on the revenue from our, our cafes, but we also rely on contributions, um, donations to to keep our programs functioning and our cafes operating. Um, and I think in this year of significant need for everyone, you know, the, the amount of uh, funding that, you know, that we've received, whether it's from you know foundations um you know a lot of that has changed foundations are you know saying hey we want to do these economic you know empowerment programs but man we have people that are they're losing their homes we've got to shift to do that now we have people that are having health issues we've got to shift to do that now we've got to figure out how to to help people in this environment of of COVID-19, how, you know, just to make it through this period. And so, you know, we've understood that, but it means that, you know, as an organization, you know, our, our funding has, has gone down a lot. And as a cafe, you know, the number of people coming in, you know, we were actually really close to the University of California, Berkeley, and this school year has been completely different. <laughs> it's been completely different. Normally there's 30,000 people uh, on campus. And right now the community here is about maybe three to 4,000, maybe 5,000 students um, that are on campus right now. And so that obviously makes a, a huge difference. Um, for us and the number of people that are that are here, and so um, yeah, it, it's it's been a very different year for us. We're hoping, you know, I guess in in 2021 that, that things will gradually change. We're actually getting ready to reopen uh, this cafe on Channing Way on February 1st um, to start serving, you know, the the students who are here on campus um, and, and hopefully get things moving again, maybe in a more healthy way in in this next year. So, what are the plans for the future besides? slowly but surely opening up your cafes, like bigger picture, five, 10 years down the line? You know, I, I think when we, when we look at it five, 10 years down the line, I mean, I think what we do here in the Bay Area and, and the rapport that we have built with the coffee community is something that can grow outside of this area. Obviously, the Bay Area is a place where people love coffee, has a very thriving coffee scene with companies and roasters and, and all of those things. But, you know, refugees have traditionally have been resettled in about 221 cities across the United States. I would guarantee that in almost any one of those cities, there are people who drink coffee and there are probably cafes. And I think there are opportunities for, for the work that we do, um, whether it's from, you know, creating, you know, maybe like flagship cafes and in some of those key cities, maybe, you know, 10 key cities or something like that, where a large number of refugees are being resettled, not to replace the coffee industry. I think that's something that people often wonder, like, are you going to open up, you know, 5,000 cafes and like take over and just have the refugees working? And no, that's not what we want to do. Um, our goal is to create a place that can be exemplary, kind of like the cafes that we have here uh, in Berkeley that can show the coffee industry what can be done. Um, but our goal is to network with the coffee industry, to have a larger community of people 
integrating and working with the refugee community as they resettle here in the United States. And so our goal is to, to hopefully be able to build those bridges, inspire more people in more cities through the coffee industry um, to do this same work. So, What would you want people to know about 1951 that maybe isn't as obvious or maybe we didn't touch upon in our conversation? Uh I think one of the things that people often wonder, I mean, we, uh, people often don't realize that we, that we are a nonprofit. I know that we've talked about that already. Um, and I think that's something that often catch people off guard. They come into our cafe and they're like, oh, this, this is so nice. Like it's, it's a nice place to be. Um, but that we really are funded through, you know, people in our community contributing to, to the work that we do. Um, and it's one of the few things that you can do where you can create, you know, contribute to a global solution, but also see a very local response to that global uh, issue. Um, and so, you know, for people to support support us, people to help us grow, um, people to come by our cafes, drink coffee, order our coffee online. All of those things enable us to be able to employ more people, train more people. Um, and so, you know, and also I think even looking at the model of what we do, this was something that I, I was passionate about working in coffee. I was passionate about working with the, the refugee community. Um, and it just happened to be the skill that I had. But there's a lot of other needs that refugees have that go far beyond what our cafe will be able to provide. Um, there are many other solutions out there. And if you have a skill set, you have an idea, like just start somewhere, start somewhere, jump on it and try to, to, to get moving and, and see what you can do. Um, so I think those are the things that I would kind of share with people. Doug, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for, for letting me be here. I, I enjoy talking with you. That was Doug Hewitt, co-founder of 1951 Coffee Company. You can learn more about 1951 by going to their website, www.1951coffee.com. We have some exciting projects that we've been working on that we're super excited to debut in the next coming weeks. So we hope you stay tuned and listen up. We'll see you next week. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode and tag us, that would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. 
You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.